Welcome to DataShare, a podcast from the Data Coalition that invites listeners to learn from top experts about government data policies. This season is brought to you by Workiva, where we will explore the dilemmas and potential solutions to make sure we build a sustainable data infrastructure. I'm Dean Ritz. I'm a member of the board of directors of the Data Coalition and Senior Director of Strategic Data Initiatives at Workiva. And I'm Corinna Turbis, Policy Manager for the Data Coalition. The federal government controls vast troves of data, but has yet to realize the full potential of these assets in policymaking. What does sustainable data look like, and what has stood in the government's way of making the most use of data to date? What new and unique challenges are coming into focus? This episode is brought to you by Workiva. Though your teams may be socially distanced, with Workiva, they don't have to be disconnected. Workiva lets government teams connect data from a single source of truth to multiple reports, from your AFR to your congressional budget justifications to A123 compliance. Get a full audit trail, share feedback, and trace data back to the source. No N95 mask necessary. Yes, Workiva. Find out more at workiva.com. That's W-O-R-K-I-V-A. This episode kicks off the series with Catherine Wallman, former chief statistician of the United States. Catherine was the chief statistician for 25 years, from 1992 to 2017, where she served in the Office of Management and Budget for the benefit of the administrations of George Bush, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, and Barack Obama. Other prominent roles pertaining to her expertise and leadership include serving as the president of the American Statistical Association, chairwoman of the United Nations Statistical Commission, and as a fellow of the American Statistical Association. Just some of the impressive statistics. Hello, Catherine. Well, hello, and it's great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Well, thanks for joining us on DataShare. I have to admit that a decade-old presentation of yours is what inspired the theme for the podcast. I don't know if you remember this presentation, but it was titled, Ensuring the Quality of Information Upon Which Public Policy is Based. And here we want to pick up the spirit of that presentation. You know, it accepts the premise that high-quality information is a necessary ingredient of public policy. And now we have an opportunity slash challenge to define and implement sustainable data systems in the federal government. So let's start with the origin of your work. How did you arrive at a career in statistics? I have to tell you that I call myself the accidental statistician. You may remember or not a movie entitled the accidental tourist. I actually came to Washington in the spirit of the times and started out in program evaluation in the federal government and then was reassigned basically into a statistical agency, the National Center for Education Statistics, and therefore uh, became a statistician um, in practice. And then uh, because of my work at NCES, I was asked to take what I refer to as my first trip to the Office of Management and Budget, where I served on the staff of the uh, then called Statistical Policy Division. From that perch, I was asked to come back to OMB and serve as the chief statistician, which I was pleased to do beginning at the very end of 1992, thus my service for a brief time in Bush 41. But uh, then I guess a little bit accidentally stayed much longer than I ever expected to because there were so many opportunities and so, so such wonderful people to work with that I, I couldn't bear leaving. So it sounds like it was a, a happy accident. Is your interest sustained through the interest in the, the calculation of the statistics, the mathematics related to it, or are you more focused on the impact that statistics have in public policy? 
That's a great question um, and one that I am happy to answer. I am not a statistician by training. Uh, my background is in sociology and psychology, and you may imagine that I'm much more interested in the policy application of the statistics and setting uh, standards and providing access to the data, the treasure trove, if you will, of government statistics so that they're used in the in informing decisions that people make, whether they're policymakers or whether they're uh, families making decisions about education for their kids or people deciding what kind of jobs they might want to get into. I sometimes call myself a heavy user, but I am much less uh, talented or qualified on the technical side of the, the coin. Yeah. I was wondering if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about the role of the chief statistician in government with respect to data governance, data quality, and how the role of that position in making sure that statistics and data are really of use to public policy. I think what is little known is, first of all, that there is a position of chief statistician of the United States. It's one of a kind. And that this position actually dates back to the 1930s. Um, So it actually predates a lot of what's going on in, in data today. The longstanding role of the office, and it's really roles of the office, um, have been first and foremost setting standards across the system. Uh, the system I refer to is the federal statistical system, and I'll define that for you as um, a dozen principal federal statistical agencies, but more than 100 agencies that are producing some of the nation's statistical product. That chief statistician role is an umbrella, if you will, providing guidance, um, suggesting priorities um, involved in the budget process uh, for deciding what kind of resources to give to those programs, um, setting standards for definitions, for the quality of data that are produced by the statistical system, I'm setting standards for dissemination of information and the like. The job also uh, is responsible, the position also is responsible for representing the United States in international statistical activities, um, and in particular in the United Nations and its regional bodies and in the um, Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. So there is a very full array of activities for the chief statistician. I believe that I also probably didn't mention in that litany one that I should have, a role that I should have, and that is the uh, role of the Office of Management and Budget that was originally with the chief statistician and is now a larger role uh, in uh, reviewing and approving all information collections that the federal government promulgates. That means everything from the census to you know, annual and uh, other surveys that are done, but those are actually a very small part of the federal trove of information collections. I think about things like uh, tax forms from the Internal Revenue Service or uh, forms that are used to administer uh, federal benefit programs. Those are all part of this um, information collection review and approval that uh, the Office of Management and Budget uh, is responsible to carry out um, and Actually, that's one of the unique functions in the U.S. federal system of information collection um, that doesn't occur very often in other countries that I'm aware of. Oh, interesting. You mentioned data standards and the chief statistician's role in that. 
Can you talk about why data standards are so important and what we need to be thinking about as we try to make better or new data standards um, as policy needs progress? Sure. Um, First of all, I will uh, note that the office of the chief statistician or the role of the chief statistician was created in some considerable measure because we do have this very decentralized system in the United States of producing information. There is no such thing as a truly central statistical office. I could give a whole lecture on that, and I won't do that right now. Anyway, given the decentralization, we needed standards that would produce data that are comparable. So, for example, we need to have definitions of industries and occupations that are comparable so that when the Census Bureau collects information that might become the denominator uh, for something about uh, industries on the on the economic side or occupations on the uh, demographic side, and the Bureau of Labor Statistics is out collecting data on how people are employed and, and so on, that the numerators and denominators match, if you will. Another group of standards uh, are standards related to definitions such as things like race and ethnicity, where, again, what we're looking for is comparability across agencies so that when we talk about the health of our population or the education of our population, we're using the same core categories um, in our collections and, and releases of information. We also have standards for release of information, and these are a little bit different. The most famous one, I suppose, if you want to call it that, is our standard for the release of the principal federal economic indicators, which was instituted, I'll tell you historically, uh, back at the time of the Nixon administration when Mr. Nixon was keen on not having the BLS uh, issue this t- <laughs> the jobs reports that, the way that BLS thought they should be. So uh, there were standards governing, very strict standards that govern the release of principal federal economic indicators to ensure that there is no um, special access to particular uh, interests, that there is no policy access to them ahead of the game when they're released by the statistical agency. Um, and there, there are a series of, of those standards, um, if anyone wants to look into them. Those uh, were well regarded uh, and have served us extremely well to the extent that a few years back, and I'm sorry, I can't remember, but it was during my time, uh, we issued a parallel set of standards, not quite as stringent because the data we're talking about in these cases don't move the financial markets. Uh, but we did issue a, a companion set of standards, if you will, for education, health, transport, so on, data that are produced but are not in the principal federal economic indicator designation. So, um, and then there are standards, core standards for quality of, of statistical information that is produced. These are methodological standards. And interestingly, I think this is one of the areas where we have work to do because we've done this over the years for statistical surveys, but we haven't done anything similar for the growing trove of information that we, we are hoping is going to be made useful for statistical purposes from administrative kinds of information, whether it's uh, from data that are used to administer federal programs, data used to regulate in some cases, um, data from the private sector uh, and other areas where we're hoping that there will be greater use made of these data um, as, as the years go by. And there really has not been a parallel 
set of standards uh, developed previously, to my knowledge, uh, for companion set of standards for uh, the quality of, of the data that would come from uh, those alternative sources. So it sounds like there's really three groupings when we talk about data standards. This subject matter standards to the extent that making sure that when we say race and ethnicity, we're all talking about the same thing. There is data governance standards that dictate how data is released, under what conditions, and then additionally, some quality standards that make sure that we can all trust that the data is saying what it means to say. Is that accurate? I think you've done a great job. I think that first category, I think you've just given me a new name. I think I used to call them definitional standards, but I think you actually had a better term and now I've already forgotten it. (laughs) (laughs) I've used the phrase subject matter standards because I also am a policy person and not a statistics person. I think uh, domain standards is another phrase that I've used. Yeah, I don't know. I don't want to, you know, <laughs> make too big deal that um, you've done exactly what I would do in a longer discussion of, of the role of the office, which is to break those standards into three or four categories, just as, as you've done. And I actually like the using the governance. I, I think those are things that I intended to call um, dissemination standards because that's where we started with. And the quality standards for sure um, are the, the ones that, they're the math nerd standards. I don't Catherine, you mentioned the Foundations for Evidence-Based Policymaking Act, which we'd like to get to in a minute. But before we move on to that, I would like to talk about legislation that you helped to craft and enact 20 years ago, uh, a major privacy law that most Americans have never heard of, the Confidential Information Protection and Statistical Efficiency Act, which a lot of us know as SIPSI. Could you talk a little bit about that law and the process of getting it passed and how it has affected the data that our government produces? There are very few things I would rather talk about than SIPSI. Um, (laughs) You and me both. (laughs) Yes, I will be happy to talk about it. I had a friend in the New York State Education Department years ago. He was in charge of the data systems and I had uh, succeeded in this was during my days at the National Center for Education Statistics, and I had succeeded after, I think it was 18 months, in getting uh, a little piece in in an education bill that gave grants to states to develop their information systems. This is way back when, guys. But anyway, I can remember clear as day, John saying to me, you are so patient. Well, because that was 18 months that it took to do that, right? Well, SIPSI takes a lot longer than that, let me tell you. Uh, a lot longer than that. The uh, roots of, let's see, when was it finally passed? In, in 2002, something? So the roots of SIPSI, I would say, easily go back to before my time, starting at, before my, my uh, big trip to OMB. So when I arrived in 1992, some of the staff were already working on on what could be done to even out the confidentiality protection for data that are provided to the federal government, uh, in particular under a pledge of confidentiality for statistical purposes. And you've seen that seemingly awkward language, but each word means something, believe me. That's really interesting. And I kind of want to get at this idea of being two sides of the same coin, confidentiality versus data sharing. When we talk about the Foundations for Evidence-Based Policymaking Act, which was passed last year, 
It included the reauthorization of SIPSI, but it also included the Open Government Data Act, which changes the perception from assuming you can't share data to assuming you can unless there is, you know, significant or statutory reasons to not share. And OMB and the chief statistician plays a crucial role in providing guidance around how agencies are to decide if it is safe to share or not. Do you have thoughts on this and what considerations should OMB look at when they're thinking about balancing these confidentiality pledges as well as wanting to have data as open as possible? I think that what is going to be developed and needs to be developed is some standards and metrics, whatever, for deciding the different levels of security and risks to that security that need to be applied to different kinds of information. And I, I don't think it's a one-size-fits-all, but I'm not sure what all the, all the different sizes are at this point, but I hope, and I think from what I read, that that activity is either underway or at least called for uh, <laughs> in the law. But I, I don't think that, that one can take data that have been been collected under a pledge of confidentiality for exclusive statistical purpose and start using them to make decisions about individuals or giving them benefits or denying them benefits or whatever. That This is the slippery slope, obviously, that's been around for a long time. It's not new, but I think that the can-do attitude needs to be the first lens on, on looking at things, and then people need to work from that. But I'm so wrapped up in the idea that this data for the statistical agency system are, with the exception of the decennial census and the quinquennial economic censuses, data are provided by the American public, and I mean not just people, but by American industries, by American governments at other levels, by educational institutions individuals, households, on a voluntary basis. And if we're pledging to those people, the one thing we can offer them is to assure the confidentiality of their data and that those data won't be used in any way to harm or benefit them directly, individually. That's the trust that we have with the respondent. And that's in the law in various places. The reason I'm stumbling around here is I believe that trust has uh, some other dimensions that aren't being very well uh, respected and, and aren't necessarily in the law. I think this gets back to your, your, your focus or your wish for statistical literacy. It's not enough to understand what the statistic means, but you also have to understand the limits of applying that statistic. Well, this podcast has the, the theme about sustainable data systems, and I don't know if we've really talked about it too much. So uh, maybe it's time to actually turn to the topic at hand. When I use the word system, I mean a set of related entities that form a unified whole, right? So it's with regard to a data system, it consists of the data, the data models that are explicit or implied by the data, the conceptual models and subject matter expertise that inform the data models, and then all the tech stuff, the computer languages that encode the models and the data and that will store and transmit the data. I think actually it's good for you to define it that way or in some broader way so that 
people aren't just assuming that it's, you know, a number on a chart somewhere. There's a whole lot to it. I used the example earlier of the decennial census processing. Gosh, that's part of the system. I mean, (laughs) that needs to be part of the system. That's where the quality controls are built in that used to be with a clerk, a statistical clerk, they used to call it. A profession that I don't know that exists in the federal government anymore. But, you know, there used to be armies of clerks looking over these forms that came in. And I suppose I'm trying to match things or unmatch them or whatever. I don't don't know how they would have done it. The, The skill for doing that now is in the systems that you talk about, that they can do a multitude of checking to figure out if there's duplication or missing data or whatever. So, okay, you, you've defined a system, okay. <laughs> well, you've enhanced the definition, right? I refer to subject matter expertise as, as part of one of the ingredients that informs a data model. From my point of view, you've added the idea of uh, sociological considerations of why you're even looking at this information uh, to begin with. And so next time I define a data system, I'll add that to it. Because uh, the human intention is an important part of it. So there's the adjective sustainable data system. So uh, what would you advise us to consider with regard to the criteria for sustainability of a data system? I guess on the one hand, one needs resources. And when I talk about resources, I mean money. But I also mean labor or human skills or whatever. I hear you on machine learning and this and that, but I also think that there are some things that need to be done by humans who are trained and able to take advantage of this knowledge and this rich set of tools to do more and more for us with information. At the same time, over the years, uh, however slowly, Uh, come to realize that it's not just about our traditional ways of doing things, that a sustainable system, if you will, needs to be much more flexible in terms of, for example, the sources of data. So whereas uh, my colleague at the Bureau of Labor Statistics stood up in one of my agency head meetings uh, some years ago and said, I don't know what you're talking about. There will always be a current population survey. So sort of stuck in that model, if you will. I think that slowly but surely, uh, maybe not fast enough, but slowly but surely, a sustainable data system at the federal government level is one that takes advantage of the many sources of data, including surveys, but not at all limited to surveys, to feed our data systems with data. (laughs) I also think that a sustainable system, more recently I've been thinking that a sustainable system needs to be more nimble. So for better, for worse, over the years, decades that I've been involved, the statistical agencies have been very good, high quality, and very slow to get information out there on the recent pandemic everyone's pointing to, but is a good example of data that are needed now, not three years from now, no matter how well designed and blah, 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 blah. Not suggesting that that quality standards and application of those standards should be thrown away, but I am saying that 
there needs to be more ability in the system to turn on a dime, if you will, or I don't know, maybe to have in place uh, the underpinnings for doing things much more quickly. There are some fine examples right now of things that the federal government has done. Uh, The Census Bureau's pulse surveys are one that come to mind quickly, but the health folks and, and some others have been doing some work. This kind of need has been there for some time. If you talk about things like um, natural disasters, hurricanes, and so on, the system has been able to help and has helped after some of the hurricanes like Katrina, but maybe we need to be thinking more about how that, (laughs) one of my friends calls it nimbility, that's the ability to be nimble, how to make the system more nimble on an ongoing basis. And I, I, I don't know if that's a contradiction or not, but I know what I mean. <laughs> Finally, let me say that I think for the system to be sustainable, well, I guess I have a two finalists uh, on that score, one of which is the one we've already talked about, statistical literacy. For the system to be sustainable, we need to have people understand its value. We need to have people understand its utility or potential utility for what they do. And we need for people to be able to assess the fitness for use of the data that they're looking at. The last thing I was going to say was that we need to, I was going to say maintain, but I think it's getting to the point where we're going to have to re-up the trust that people have in the statistical system and what it produces. And we're at a low point in that trust, I think. We've talked about trust as the trust of the respondents, but I think that um, the trust of the users is at risk, heavy duty at risk at the moment. I I don't know what our task is going to be over the next few years um, in this trust arena, but I, I don't think that any system, whether it's public or private, whether it's a partnership between the public and private, which I should have mentioned as part of what I think needs to be thought about in terms of sustainable system, but any of these systems, we got a big trust thing that's going to be in our face or is in our face, whatever. That certainly is a big topic. And we are dedicating an entire episode later in the series to just public trust. So that will certainly come up later. We are nearing the end of our time. Uh, so I want to thank you for uh, joining us and offering all of your insights and sharing your experience with us. We really appreciate it. Join us next week when we are joined by Dan Morgan, the co-chair of the Federal Chief Data Officers Council and CDO at the U.S. Department of Transportation to talk about what agencies within the federal government are doing and what CDOs are doing to make it better. In the meanwhile, please stay in touch, connect with the Data Coalition on Twitter at Data Coalition or visit datacoalition.org. For resources and more details on today's show, check the podcast description. And don't forget to rate us and review this podcast where you listen to your podcasts, Apple, iTunes, or Google Play. See you next week for another installment of Data Share.